Good morning. It's good to be with you all on this Lord's Day. It's been wonderful being here with you, with your men. I uh, think my voice is going to hold out. We'll see. I don't blame it entirely on the four sermons. I also blame Aaron for making us sing so much. And I don't really have, uh, like my, my family makes fun of me because I only have a loud setting on my singing voice. I just sing loud, and then it's gone, and that's it. So thanks, Aaron. Um, it's a joy to be with you all. Uh, I bring you greetings from the saints in Moscow, Idaho. Um, it's wonderful to um, come to Wisconsin and see what the Lord's doing here. Um, and you know how this is, but you know, you, you travel, you visit a church you have never been to before, and, and sometimes you think, well, that's an interesting set of cousins I never knew about. And then sometimes... You walk in and you say, oh, it's family. I know you, right? We, we, know, we know the same Lord. We have the same spirit. We have his word, and here we are. We're family. That's how it's felt here. Easy, easy. So praise God for what he's doing here. And uh, thank you, Jeremy, uh, Terry, and the other elders uh, for the invitation to come, and um, praise God. Uh, the sermon text is, uh, is an exciting one. It's a fun one. One of the pastors this morning said, oh yeah? <laughs> uh, no, this is, uh, this is significant. This is from Deuteronomy 22. Um, and then I'm going to look at actually uh, another couple of verses from Deuteronomy 21 as well. Deuteronomy 22, uh, verses 22 to 24. Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 to 24. These are the words of God. If a, mount, if a man be found lying with a woman... Married to a husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. And turn the page back to chapter 21, beginning at verse 18. Chapter 21, verse 18. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out into the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place, and they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Let's pray. God and Father, this is your holy word. It is living and true, and we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us so that we might hear and believe and obey. May your word be sharp. Cut us where we need to be cut, and so refashion us and to those who bear your image faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever had a conversation with someone who's not a believer or maybe a very liberal Christian or something, one of the classic objections that you will get to the inspiration of the word of God, that all of scripture is God-breathed, that every word of it is good and true, every word of it is pure gold, is some variation on, I could never believe in a God who, 
And maybe it's send people to hell. But right after that, it's quickly run to the Old Testament law. And you have, you know, the, the conquest of the land, destruction of whole cities. And then you have the law itself. You're telling me you believe in a God who said that adultery, adulterers should be put to death. You're telling me that you believe in a God who said that rebellious children should be put to death. Really? And frequently, Christians, even well-meaning Christians who you know, hold to the inspiration of Scripture, believe every word is the Word of God, holy and entirely, feel like they've got knocked on their heels. Well, uh, but that was the Old Testament. But then, it's like, but you got to be careful. That's a slippery slope. That was the Old Testament. So what about Genesis 1? Did God create the heavens? Well, yeah, he created the heavens and the earth, but, but there's Genesis and then there's Deuteronomy. But Jesus quotes Deuteronomy all through his ministry. You shall love the Lord your God by your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy in the temptation scene. And so there you are. I don't, yeah, I mean it. And, and we're tempted to think that God maybe was a little harsh in the Old Testament. And we begin, if we're not careful, sliding into this sense that, yeah, I mean, I don't know, that maybe it just seems really mean. But the Bible clearly says that, the, that God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it was that God who created the heavens and the earth. It was that God who saved Noah and his family through the flood and destroyed the rest of the human race. It was that God who delivered Israel out of Egypt. It was that God who took them into Canaan. It was that God who gave us David and the Psalms and sent the prophets. It was that God, not a different God. Now, sometimes, of course, when you're in the apologetics conversation or a debate, and they say, yeah, you believe in a God who would say that would give you that, you know, somebody's got to die for adultery, the death penalty for a rebellious uh, son. Uh, and, and you say, well, okay, well, hold on. Ever since we rejected the law of God, so you know until about 50, 60 years ago, laws on the books that criminalized, that made it uh, against the law for no-fault divorce, that, um, that there were you know, anti-sodomy laws, there were, mar- there were marriage laws. I mean, we had basically a law code Uh, based on biblical law about 50, 60 years ago. We say, you know, what happened, though, is what happened? So you want us to get rid of God's law, and what do we get in place of that? We got divorce on demand. We got fornication on demand. We got porn on demand. We got all this, you know, rebellious kids on demand. We got it all going, and what did that give us? Well, we got, I mean, what, what are the incarceration rates of fatherless children? What are the addiction, the suicide rates of fatherless children? How many people do we have in prison now? Yeah, so, um, and, and then on top of all that, 60 million dead babies. It's not whether you're going to have a death penalty, it's which one. Right? We exchanged God's law and then we executed 20, 60 million babies 
for our sexual pleasure. They believe in the death penalty. So yeah, I'll take God's law every day of the week. If that means occasionally adultery is, is executed, adultery is penalized through execution, absolutely, I'll take that instead of 60 million babies who, deserved, who never deserved any of that. Our, you know, our, our kids, do kids grow up? Are they hardened rebels? Are they thieves, gluttons, drunkards? Yeah, I can see a situation where in a complete, completely hardened state, yeah, the state says, that's it, the death penalty for you. And I would take that every day of the week instead of 60 million babies dead, instead of the incarceration rates we have, instead of the suicide rates we have, because God's law, turns out, is good, holy, and just. But the other thing, the other side of it is, as you're tempted to think, man, it was, but still, it seems, God, is that, I mean, you're being harsh. Rather than thinking that God might be harsh, I think we need to, we need to flip it around and say, what are we missing? You know, when you're driving down the road and you see, you know, the, the orange cones on the side of the road, or you see a bunch of, you know, fire trucks or police trucks and there's the sirens going, I mean, I don't know about you, but you don't typically say, man, they're kind of making a big deal. Like, ooh, lights. Put up your orange cones. Probably nothing. Probably a cat in a tree or something. No, what do you do? You see the orange cones, you see the yellow tape, and you think, whoa, I wonder what happened there. It must be bad. It must be a big deal. You know, they detour in traffic, go around. I wonder if there was a fire. I wonder if there was a crime. It must be a big deal. Bible-believing Christians should do the same thing when you see a death penalty. When you're reading through the Old Testament law and God says adultery may need the death penalty, rebellious children may need the death penalty, we should stop and think not, man, God, you're sort of making a big deal about this. We should think, I wonder what God is protecting. I wonder why the stakes are so high that God would say sometimes it would be better for those offending parties to be put to death. It would be better for everyone. What is God protecting? In, uh, in Idaho, I'll see if it works in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, but in Idaho, you know, we have a lot of the you know, Second Amendment rights, libertarian types. Are there anybody in the room? We got, got any of those here? You know, a few of them. Yeah, so, you know, Second Amendment, libertarians, you know, what, you know we want, we, we, you know, right to keep and bear arms. And, I, and I'm, don't get me wrong, I'd like the Second Amendment too. But, you know, the, the hardcore libertarian types is like, you know, people should have the right to defend themselves from the government. And they should have all of the weapons that the government can have. So if the government has fully automatic weapons, then the people need to have fully automatic weapons. And if the government has tanks, then the people should have tanks. And I say, and so should you have nukes? Should the people have nukes? Sometimes in Idaho, there's somebody in the back. Yeah! <laughs> I live in northern Idaho. I mean, you know. And I'm like, yeah, I'll talk to you later. Right? Even the most red-blooded, conservative, libertarian, you know, Christian libertarian types, you know, it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not nukes. Why? Why not? Why don't, want, why don't you want your neighbor playing with plutonium in his basement? 
You know, well, because something might happen. He might drop it, you know, the uranium or whatever, and then kaboom. He's not just doing something that just affects him. He's playing with something that might have massive fallout. When you come across these laws in the Old Testament, where God says, marriage, you don't mess with it. And if they do, you might need to put them to death. It would be better for the whole community. It would be better for the whole culture if you killed the one or you killed the couple and you put them to death than to let that blow up. You see, we are living in a land that has been pockmarked with nuclear fallout. You see, they said to us, why do you care what consenting adults do in the privacy of their own home? And Christians didn't have an answer. The best of them said, because it's wrong. We don't know, but it's wrong. The best of them said that. And praise God for that. But the answer is right here. And the answer is because what you are playing with in the privacy of your home will impact all of us. I am paying tax dollars for millions of fatherless children who are incarcerated today because their parents were playing with plutonium in the basement. There are 60 million dead babies because people said, we can play with this and nothing will happen. We use the phrase nuclear family. I finally looked it up this week. Actually, I've been using this illustration for a little while, and I thought I should find out. Why do we call it the nuclear family? Well, it, it comes from the idea of a nucleus, the, the, the very center of an atom. And so the idea of a nuclear family was, was initially, originally, just the idea that the, the, the biological family, the, 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 the man, the woman, the husband, wife, the children, that home and that, that family unit is the nucleus of society. It's the center of society, and that's true enough. But you know what? Certain kind of nucleuses, if you break them open, kaboom. It's nuclear. And so God says... This is potent. This is powerful. If you play with this, people will die. The stakes are high. I think this is really, really important on the flip side, not only for us wanting to protect the institution of the family, not only wanting to protect the institution of marriage, but also for Christians understanding what God is up to then when he gives us positive commands related to our roles as husband and wife, parents and children. I think even, again, fully, you know, fully orthodox, Bible-believing Christians frequently don't have very good answers when, when the question comes, wait, so you believe that a husband is the head of his wife? And you believe that the wife has to submit to her husband and obey him? And the Bible-believing Christian is like, yeah, I do. 
It's in Ephesians. I read it, and you know, I, yeah, that's what I believe. Why? And and you know, and it's better. You know, blessed are those who obey God's word, not knowing why. Okay, blessed are those who just say, "God said it. I don't know. I'm going to do it." Okay, praise God. But God has given us more than Ephesians five. He's given us his entire word, and we are called to study his word, to know him, and to, and to seek to understand why. But one of the ways that worldliness and paganism has seeped into even evangelical and conservative and Bible-believing churches is that we don't know what the family is for anymore. Frequently, even in conservative Bible-believing churches, the family is sort of this souped-up roommate situation where you're allowed to have sex. It's, but it's like, what's going on there exactly? Like, you know, I mean, we, 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 we live there, we eat there, um, you know, we, we're, we're trying to, maybe we teach the kids there some, and, and you know, we're, we're married there, and, and, and then, you know, we, you know, play games sometimes and watch movies on the weekends and have people over sometimes. And I'm not against any of that. I just listed a bunch of stuff that we do in my family. But that's not what the family's for. But, but if, if it, all you think of is, are those things, just sort of, it's a place where you have to live, you've got to live somewhere, and, and then, you know, and so, you know, the man should, you know, sort of protect them and provide for them, and, 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 and then the wife follows his lead and helps him and with the children, and, I mean, again, all good things, but it can still seem a little bit extreme to say, so, why does he get to be in charge? And why does she have to obey him? My, uh, my friend, uh, Pastor Chris Wiley, in one of his books, I think, you know, pointed out that uh, sometimes in Christian families, like, the most important decisions are, like, what's for dinner and what you're going to watch tonight. And so headship, you know, like, I believe in biblical headship. I believe that the husband is the head of his family. Sort of seems like it's saying, so you're saying, like, he gets to pick what's for dinner and what you watch on TV. It's like, that sort of seems weird. Like, why, why would I want to join your cult? <laughs> You're like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's more than that. But it's like, well, what is it? What is it? What is going on in the family? Well, go back again. God says there's yellow tape all over this thing. This thing is nuclear. It's potent. It's powerful. What's going on there? What is the family for? What are we doing? biblical answer is, we're making people. We're making immortal souls that will live forever. That's where they're made. Families, households are people, factories. It's where immortal souls come into existence that will live forever in eternal glory or everlasting torment and hell. The stakes are high. People are being made here. And God has, has so engineered, so designed the family that what they need ordinarily is they need a father, they need a mother, they need a husband, they need a wife. They need provision, they need clothes, they need food. 
They need teaching. They need love. They need correction. They need all of these things. And God says, this is how you handle this plutonium. This is how you handle this, this thing, this, these beings, these souls. Careful. Don't drop them. C.S. Lewis has a great quote where he is describing this reality of just that people themselves are, all, every person, every human being made in the image of God is not a mere mortal. Every human being made in the image of God has been given an immortal soul that will live forever. And as you already heard this morning, one day those souls will be reunited with their bodies to live again in everlasting splendor and glory or everlasting horror and torment. This is from a sermon that he gave one time called The Weight of Glory. Lewis says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Think of John in Revelation where he, you know, he sees somebody and falls down and the guy says, get up, I'm just a person like you. Lewis keeps going. He says, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. All day long. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Stakes are high. Of course, Lewis is inviting us to think about this broadly. Not just your family, not just your church family, but your community. Everyone you come in contact with, that person you're chatting with furiously or arguing with on Facebook, you know, isn't immortal. The person you sit next to on the plane isn't immortal. And all day long we are coming in contact with immortal souls that will live forever in everlasting splendor or everlasting horror. The stakes are high. And so God says, husbands, love 
your wives as Christ loved the church. You have married an immortal soul. And you are now responsible for her before me. You have to make sure she gets all the way to heaven. Wives, you are married to an immortal, a man who will live forever. You are called to respect your husband all the way to heaven. Children, you are called to obey your parents. Honor them highly. And this is, all of these things go both ways. Husbands, you need to love your wives. That's good for you and it's good for them. And wives, you need to respect and submit to your husbands. It's good for you to learn that virtue, that skill, and it's good for them. Your men need that. And children, when you obey and honor your parents, you are ministering to your parents. That is, a, that is not just the thing you're supposed to do. It's good for your parents to be honored and obeyed. It blesses them. It encourages their hearts. You're helping them go to heaven. And parents, you need to teach them to obey. You need to require them to obey. You need to discipline them in love. Why? Because you've been given immortal souls that God has entrusted you with to lead to heaven. You see, these, these callings of a husband and a wife and children and parenting, it's not just God sort of rolling the dice and saying, all right, you can do the loving, you can do the respecting, all right, and you, I guess you guys are little, so you have to obey. No, this was all by design. God created this nuclear reactor where immortal souls are being made all day long. And God says, here's the plan. Someone's got to be responsible for this whole thing. Someone's in charge. And if something goes wrong, it's going to be that person's fault. And suddenly, a bunch of the women are like, fine, he can be in charge. <laughs> cool with me. It's his fault. This is how God designed it. Think about, you know, those other places in our culture. You know, you, you say, yeah, I believe that a wife should submit to her husband and obey her husband. And I believe a husband should lead and love his wife like Christ loved the church. He's the head of his family and the head of his wife and kids. And so that just seems so medieval, so, uh, you know, backwards. But think about the other places in this world where we don't bat an eye when it comes to obedience. You know, if your boss says, you've got to be here at 8 a.m. or you're going to be fired. And you tell your friend, you know, you're leaving, you're rushing out, you grab a cup of coffee, oh, I've got to be there, I've got to be at 8. Ba boss says, I've got to be there, I have to, I've got to be there. Your, your, your friend doesn't say, how patriarchal. How backward and medieval of you to obey your boss. Don't you feel like you're such an inferior? You're like, no, I just got a job. Like, if I don't show up on time and we don't do the work, 
it's not going to get done and a business is going to fail. It's kind of important that I show up. He's in charge. I have to obey. That's how the business runs. Oh, so you're saying it's important. Or, you know, you get pulled over by a cop or, you know, there's a traffic cop saying, go this way, go this way. You know, roll down your window and be like, I'm not, it's not like I'm worse than you. It's not like I'm less human just because I'm obeying. <laughs> Nobody does that. We, we know, like, he's a cop. The stakes are high. It's kind of important. And when a woman says, oh, I, I need to be home. My husband asked me to be home by this time. Everybody's like, are you okay? You an oppressive relationship? Blink twice. Right? Why? Because we don't think the family is important. Christians should have the same joyful confidence that you hear about. You know, maybe you've heard Romans 13 a few times this year. And obey the civil magistrate. And of course, that's a different sermon. But how about joyful, glad obedience to a father, to a husband? Why? Because we're making people, and we're not going to screw this up. These people will live forever, and it's more important than so many other things we do in this life. None of the families in this room are perfect. None of our marriages are perfect. We're sinners. We've failed. The nuclear fallout is in this room isn't it? We've had fathers that failed, mothers that failed, broken marriages, fornication, porn use, addictions, suicide. The fallout is in this room. The Old Testament ends with one of the most glorious promises. This is Malachi 4, 5 and 6. God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Our sin has done great damage to our families to our marriages. But God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to bear that curse for us. He did come and strike the earth with a curse. But he came and he struck his own son on the cross with the curse. And in so doing, he has ignited an entirely new nuclear reaction. He takes our curse. He who was not, who had no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He came to take the curse that has fallen on every one of our families, the curse of Adam that has seeped into all of our water, the pollution that's in all the air. Christ Jesus came to bear that cross, to bear that curse for your family for your marriage, for your parenting, for your failed marriage, for your rebellious children, 
He came to bear that curse. He came to take that shame. He came to take that pain. He came to take it all. And then having taken it all, he said, it is finished. It is gone. You are clean. You are forgiven. The pollution is gone. The curse is gone. And now you are righteous and you are holy in Christ. When God pulls out your file, when he pulls out your file, say, he's got a file? Yeah, he's got a file. It's a big one. He pulls out your file, he pulls up your name, he pulls out your folder and he opens it. What does he see for your name? Everything comes down to, are you in Christ? Is Christ your all? Is Christ your Lord, your Savior, your King, your Redeemer? If you are in Christ, you know what he opens when he opens that folder with your name on it? It says, my beloved son, perfect husband, perfect father, perfect son, perfect daughter, perfect mother, perfect wife, holy, innocent, my favorite. That's what he sees. Why? Because all the other stuff is gone. It's gone. You believe that? That's the only way you could possibly walk out of here and say, okay, this family thing is way bigger than I thought. Now I need to love my wife like Christ loved the church because she's an immortal soul that will live forever and together we've made these people and we're making these people that will live forever. Now I don't want to screw this up. The only way you're going to be able to do that in faith is to know in Christ I am perfect. In Christ I am righteous. In Christ all my sins are gone. And then every time, of course, you fail, every time you fall down, every time you snap, every time you sin, you quickly go and you make it right. Honey, that was a sin. Jesus died for it. Please forgive me. And you confess and you forgive and you get back to it. Jesus died to bear the curse for us and he rose from the dead to make all things new. All things includes all the things in this room. Broken families, failed fathers, bitter wives, rebellious children, grumpy parents, all things. All things new doesn't mean everything magically and immediately fixed. But all things new means the grace to walk through this world putting things right. Being a Christian doesn't mean there isn't sin in your family or sin in your marriage, sin in your house. Being a Christian means you know what to do with it. You see families maybe in Walmart or McDonald's or somewhere, you know, and they've got a toddler and they take the Coke and they just go on the floor. And the parents, ah, 
could you do that? Sometimes I want to go over and say, don't you know what toddlers do? That's their like spiritual gift is making messes. And but frequently parents make a bigger mess in the souls of their children by their reaction to the mess than you know, just get some towels. Right? You know what to do with messes, right? Get a mop. How could you spill the milk? How could you get ketchup on your shirt? How could they not? Now thank God for bibs and sippy cups. But Christians do the same thing with sin. I, I got angry at my wife. Now, ah, oh, it's nothing. I'm going to be depressed for a week. I just am never going to change it. You're making a bigger mess now than you did when you got angry with your wife. Go to her. Look her in the eye. Honey, that was sin. That was anger. I was wrong. Jesus died for it. Please forgive me. And you just cleaned it up. Forgive him. Like you've been forgiven. Or you griped, you complained, you criticized your husband, you weren't being respectful, you weren't submitting joyfully. And then you can get in a funk and be depressed and try to blame him and blame whatever, the weather, and you didn't eat, and you're not the kids. And you're making a bigger mess. Go to your husband, go to God. Please forgive me for being disrespectful. Please forgive me for not obeying you cheerfully and complaining and criticizing you. Jesus died for that sin. And he says, I forgive you. And you just cleaned it up. We are making people all day long. Of course, that includes biological conception. Maybe, that, maybe that's not all day long. Hey, God invented it. But what do I mean? I mean all the things. All the things that people need. When you laugh with them. When you hug them. When you tickle them. When you kiss your wife and tell her she's beautiful. When you hug your husband and thank him for working so hard for your family. When you sit around the dinner table and you enjoy good food and drink. And you toast mom because she did it again. And you tell jokes, and you go for walks, and you take a vacation, and it's crazy because the car breaks down. What are you doing? You're making people who will live forever. By God's grace, they will live forever in everlasting splendor. God and Father, we thank you for the high calling of husbands and wives and parents and children. Thank you for families where people are being made, immortal souls being fashioned for glory. Father, thank you for Christ who took the curse for our sin so that we might be the righteousness that is needed to make people who will live forever with you. Father, we thank you for this high calling. Give us the right kind of trepidation and joy, knowing that you have given us two particular people, four particular people, 
so that we might all go to heaven together and be raised together and live together with you forever. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.